Hey everyone, welcome to the Royal Podcast of Oz. This is Jared Davis with Sam Malazzo, if you don't know us by now. And today we are resuming our series of Movies of Oz podcasts with a movie that you might have seen. And I'm sure this is one that almost everyone or a lot of people have been waiting for, hoping for at least. It's MGM's... Musical classic adaptation of Elfin Bombs, The Wizard of Oz. Woohoo! Now, for a lot of people, this has been their first uh, introduction to Oz. Uh, last week, we were talking to Eric Sanner, and he said that this his first exposure to Oz, and it was also my first exposure. Yeah, this was one of my introductions, too. Um, I was born near the end of 84, but I saw a lot of Arthur versions of The Wizard of Oz at that time, too. Return to Oz, the 1982 Toho anime, um, Journey Back to Oz, The Wiz some years later. But yes, MGM's Wizard of Oz was one of the introductions for me. Um, I, like many children, did um, have a video of it. We had like the movie taped recorded onto a tape, and I would watch that. And when I got the actual video from MGM slash UA before Warner Brothers, I did used to watch it just about almost every day after school. And I enjoyed it. Yes, I do like the movie. Yeah. Um, for some Oz fans, it's been a love-hate relationship in that we love that it's made Oz so popular. The only problem is, is that this Oz is the most popular. Yes, like I said, I do love this film, but there are things about it I don't quite like. Um, it's over popularity, for one thing, like how um, because this film is so beloved, they don't really carefully look at the original books or how some of the characters develop or build throughout the film as compared to the book. Um, I do have a bit of a problem with the editing, some of the shots, little glitches, um, things like that. But we'll get to them in time. Yeah. I mean, I'll just say it right now. It, it, it's not a perfect film, but on the other hand, it's not a terrible film. No. So, yeah. And I guess we'll talk about how the movie goes. So... We could talk about beat by beat. I suppose, like, a lot of people know this film very well. Speaking for myself, I know this film pretty well, but it actually has been over two years since I've actually sat down and watched the film. Like, not since the 2009 Ultimate Collector set. So, this is the first time I've watched it in a long time. So, maybe going through with more or less bit by bit would be good for our audience if they don't mind. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, for me, when that recent Tom and Jerry and the Wizard of Oz came out, I, that movie made me want to watch the MJ movie again. So I did. And uh, sometime last month, I watched it again. And then last week, and then yesterday, I watched it again. <laughs> All the Oz book fans are like, Jared, shame. So I didn't quite have the same fresh perspective that you must have had on it. 
I did try to watch for some little glitches here and there that I've noticed people, but for some reason I just can't really notice them. But we'll get to those. Uh, so the movie opens with some pretty nice titles, actually. Leo the Lion. Oh. It opens with Leo... It opens with Leo the Lion, MGM's trademark introduction, roaring at the title. And then we see the only exterior location, the only filming done outside, which is clouds passing by and um, words and text screens on them. Yep. And having a dedication before we see Dorothy and Toto running along the road on Kansas to home because she's just about finished school. I mean, she's got this shoes, like school black shoes, um, books tied up with string, Toto's chasing her, running alongside her, and she's in a bit of a dilemma with um, another character who was written up for the screen, a lady called Miss Gulch. She isn't coming in yet. Did she hurt you, Toto? Well, she tried to. And now the Kansas scenes here are all in sepia tone, which is more like a brownish color. And uh, sometime in re-releases, for some reason, instead of sepia, got shown in black and white. And that's actually how a lot of people remember it. But it's actually sepia tone. And it was done to kind of emulate the color scheme of the original book, The, Wizard of, the Wonderful Wizard of Oz. Uh, I think you don't have such a high opinion of sepia tone, though, do you, Sam? It's not bad, but I do prefer the black and white version because, as it's often been told, Elfin Baum mentioned the word grey in the first chapter of the book nine times. Grey isn't brown. Grey is black and white. I think that black and white is easier on the eyes than um, sepia or brown. And it's much easier to separate black and white from color because brown is a color of sorts. So I just prefer black and white. It's just easier on the eyes, at least for me. Okay, so Dorothy runs the rest of the way home with Toto. And she's trying to tell her aunt and uncle about all her problems. And they're working on an incubator that's just gone bad. And they have a lot of chicks that were in it that were in it. What exactly is Aunt Em and Uncle Henry's problem with the incubator? Well, they say it's gone bad, and the thing was that even though the book takes place about uh, at the turn of the century on a farm, the film actually updated it to uh, what was then modern times, where you would still have a farm. 38. Yeah. You would still have a farm like that where people would live, but... Here they have a machine called an incubator that would keep young chicks uh, warm and until they could, until they grew up. That way they could have several chicks at the same time, rather than just a few that that uh, that chickens would take care of. So um, apparently it's gone bad, and they're trying to save as many chicks as they can. That was just basically a bit of information for those of us who weren't as well diverse in American culture, or at least the farming culture, yes. such as myself. So with her aunt and uncle not really being able to listen to her, Dorothy then goes to the farmhands, who would later become her Oz friends, but they are also 
otherwise too busy or not quite as interested, not in the bad way, but just preoccupied. Yeah, they were... Although they do try to give her advice on how to deal with her own problems, but it's not exactly going well. Yeah. The farmhands were created for the film, and they're named Hunk, uh, Hickory, and Zeke. And they're played by Ray Bolger, Jack Haley, and Burt Lard. And, like I said, they were created for the film, but uh, they they kind of do have previous counterparts in earlier versions of Oz. In the book Ozma of Oz, it said that Uncle Henry has hired farmhands to take care of the farm while he's away in Australia. And then later in the 1925 film, and also the 1902 musical, there are farmhands on the farm. But in the 1925 film, they play a bigger role. And there's a lot more early influences that MGM has from previous Oz films, but we'll get to those in time. And so Dorothy is not having the problems listened to by anyone. And Antem says, find yourself a place where you won't get into any trouble. And she wonders through song if there really is such a place. And it's Don't a- start, Jared. I'm not going to. I'm not going to. It says that this song is really, well, it's quite one of the loveliest songs ever created for Oz. It is, and it's sung so gently too. Like it's not, it's not given a big start. It's not. It doesn't drop you right in. It has a. It's almost like a ballad. Um, she, Judy Garland sings it the best way that she does. Simple, bit of elegance, but just simplicity. Something that doesn't happen in a lot of later versions. The only um, other singer I've heard who has sung Over the Rainbow in a good way was Jane Monheit for Sky Captain and the World of Tomorrow. Everyone else, um, they add a little bit of pop or otherwise energy to it but the way judy garland and jane sing it it's the better way it is a lovely song and it has it expresses that dorothy dreams of a place that's better than what her current existence is and she wants to do things and she has ambitions and dreams but rainbows cannot come without rain. And here comes some rain in Dorothy's life right now. This would kind of be something like a lemon drop because she's very sour. And we're talking about Miss Gulch, played by Margaret Hamilton. Yeah, Miss Gulch claims that Toto bit her on the leg. And she has a order from the sheriff to take him. And she's probably going to try to have him put down. Yeah. Now, unfortunately... Because uh, Miss Gulch has a lot of sway, there's nothing Antem and Uncle Henry can really do, even though they don't really want her to, her to take Toto either. Um, at one time, Miss Gulch was said in the script to be a, a school teacher, and that's sometimes mentioned in modern day presses too, but she does have a little bit more authority here than a teacher would if she's allowed to take a dog from. A residence. Antim says that just because you own half the county, presumably she somehow has a lot of power. So 
I don't know. I'm not sure exactly how she would pull this off because she's Miss Gulch, not Mrs. Gulch. So it's not like she had a very influential husband who died and she took over from him. Mm. Um, unless she went back to her maiden name. And speaking of Phantom, she also mentioned how for 23 years she's been dying to tell Miss Gulch what she thought of her. But, and I quote, being a Christian woman, I can't say it. Now, for those of us who weren't exactly in the know about this, um, what does Aunt Hem mean, you think? Uh, pretty much what she's saying would not be acceptable for younger ears. Mm. Yeah. Even I'm... in 1938 standard? Definitely by 1938 standards. Okay, but so yeah, a lot of a lot of um, dialogue and speech, even grammar and language, has changed in the seventy-four years that this film has been made and t- today. So sometimes what they would have said being deemed unacceptable back then is pretty tame today. But I guess we will never actually know about that then. Well, I wouldn't even say what I think she probably would have said on the, uh, right here on the podcast due to some young listeners we might have. And also notably here before Dorothy runs back to her room crying, she calls Miss Gulch a wicked old witch. So, yes. That gives you a little... That's hint. something to think about later. Now, Miss Gulch does take Toto and she puts him in the back of, in a basket on the back of her bicycle, but she hasn't secured it very tightly. And Toto manages to jiggle it open and jump out of it and run back home. Dorothy is glad of the reunion, but she knows that Miss Gulch may come back for him. So she decides to run away, packing a suitcase, a basket, and then leaving the family she has, escaping the problems. Yeah. It's not exactly a very good thing for her to do, and the thing is, though, that people know this, and in fact, she runs into Professor Marvel, who's a showman. He has his own wagon out in the wilderness, a little campfire, a nice fellow. Yeah, yeah, I mean, he's definitely a showman, a kind of flim-flammer, but... You know, at heart, hes you can tell he's actually a good guy. I really like the way Frank Morgan played this character. Even though that, yes, this is also a character added for the film. I actually prefer the Professor Marvel character much more than I do the wizard character in this film. You might be right there in that Professor Marvel has a bit more of a richer character than this film's take on the wizard. Like a like the character. But, uh... Mm. On the other hand, considering how much time we actually get with the wizard, I think that's kind of sadly what's going to happen. So he takes Dorothy to look into his crystal ball, and what he sees is Aunt Em crying because Dorothy's gone. And then he tells her Dorothy that Aunt Em's uh, putting her hand on her heart and falling down on a bed. And Dorothy's... Well, at least he tells her what he sees. Nothing's happening in the crystal ball, but he managed to have a sneak at the photo Dorothy has of her and Aunt Em in the basket while he suggested to close her eyes to be a bit more um, in touch with the spirits. In tune with the infinite, he says. He manages to convince her to go back home, which is for the better, 
which is good because otherwise you would have been caught out in the middle of the cyclone or tornado without any cover at all. Yeah, so Dorothy's and running. I really do like the tornadoes. It's been noted that even with with even with CGI and everything, that no one has been able to make a tornado this scary on film. Or realistic. Well, I wouldn't say scary, just much more realistic. It doesn't twist, twist, twist constantly on screen like you would see in animation. It just moves about slowly at a steady pace um, with a good cloud of dust at the bottom. And, yeah, it definitely has a solid form. Uh But um, I do love this tornado, but I just wish they had kept use all of the shorts that they filmed in order. Because you notice how when we cut to a different shot of the tornado, it always changes its shape. Sometimes it's closer, sometimes it's further away, sometimes it's darker, more lit, twisted, more straight, you know? Well, I've actually watched the film, and it's um, uncut sequence across the prairie, and the timing matches perfectly. They could have just used that one shot um, in chronological order. Yeah, well, sometimes tornadoes are very erratic in movement, so who knows? Uh, So, yes, there's a tornado on... So, yeah, there's a tornado on the farm. Everyone's um, in a frantic, sometimes looking for Dorothy, but um, they've got to get into the cellar, and Dorothy doesn't know that. Yeah. Now, when Dorothy gets home, she gets back, she's desperately looking for everyone. She tries to get into the cellar, but the door is shut tight, and she's in a panic, and for some reason she doesn't think to try to pull the door open. She still goes back into the house to look for Aunt Em, just in case, and that's when she gets a blow to the head, and her adventure begins. The window comes loose and knocks her out, and it, and you see a shot of Dorothy that... I'm not sure how to describe this. It definitely makes it look like she's she's suddenly being delirious. She's getting a headspin of sorts. I think the best way to describe it would be that she's getting a headspin with all with the storm and stuff. A headspin of sorts, like a delirious headspin. When she recovers consciousness, the house has been picked up by the tornado, and She's being carried around, and looking out the window, she sees uh, people, animals that have been caught up by the tornado. There's two men in a rowboat, an old lady sitting calmly in her rocking chair, just knitting away. With a cat in the lap. <laughs> uh, cows, some chickens, and then there's Miss Gulch on her bike. Which becomes a witch on a broom. And Dorothy hides back on her bed. And then the house begins to fall. Everything's flying around the room. Dorothy, he's screaming, and then, boom! Oh! And then we come to one of the most iconic moments of the film. She goes to a door, her sepia-toned door, she opens it, and we step into glorious Technicolor, the Technicolor-full world of Oz. She steps out into this place with all these little round buildings and all these little pastel colors. There's a little brook outside. There's all these bushes and greenery. 
And she says one of the most classic lines in history. Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Well, she isn't. And then she's welcomed to this country by Billy Burke, who plays Glinda, the Good Witch of the North, who is actually a combination of the old Good Witch of the North and Glinda, the Witch of the South. So, both old and beautiful. Glinda here doesn't really look like Dinslow's pictures of the Good Witch of the North or Glinda. And she also doesn't look like anything John O'Neill drew. No, not closely, no, not at all. Uh, her costume is pink, which kind of brings to mind the Quadling Country because it's a lighter shade of red, but mm-hmm. I don't really think that's what they had in mind. I suppose you could say, like, with the proposal of combining the white Good Witch of the North and, I suppose, the red Good Witch or Sorceress of the South, that the red and white could be pink, but... Uh, yeah, I don't really think pink is uh, a suitable color for a good witch, I suppose. Uh, in the book, people, if you don't remember, uh, the Good Witch of the North wears only white, and later one of the munchkins says only witches and sorcerers wear white. However, as you can see, they didn't decide to bring this idea into the movie because it was more, for example, Wicked of the West, it's more uh, common to have her wearing just black. To to be, to represent her evilness, yes, that's understandable. Black is a good color for evil. However, the costume really does flatter Billy Burke and it shows off her, you know, she was getting up on her years, so this actually does make her look pretty nice, you could say. Yeah, um, like I've said before, when I watched the movie on its own, like before all this comparison to the book, looking at other versions, I didn't have a problem with what Glinda wears, but now that time has passed and I've seen other versions and in comparison to the book and character descriptions, I do think they should have done something different. Like maybe going more for, I know that both movies were being worked on at the same time and they couldn't really see each other, but I really more think that Billy Book should have worn something like the blue fairy hat in Disney's Pinocchio. Like, it had a slight goddess appeal to it, but it also um, wasn't too much of a fairy gown. Like, it it didn't have puffy sleeves. It had a simple dress that did, wasn't puffy. So I think... A slightly goddess-like gown would be more fitting for Glinda, like the blue fairy costume. That could have looked nice. However, on the other hand, considering how it's gone down, I really don't have a problem with with how they used it in this film. So Mm. Maybe it would look nicer, but on the other hand, considering it was 70 years ago and there's no way to change it now, Mm. I can live with it. But although I do think that um, Billy Burke's pink Glinda fairy sort of costume does look better in the Marvel DC comic than it does in the actual film. It could be the crisper lines, but I just think it looks better in comic form than in actual film. Something else worth noting was that in the 50th anniversary uh, print of the film, uh, for some reason the colors were actually so faded on the print they were using, Glinda's costume looked white in it. A little bit too white, I think. Yeah. 
Uh, more recent versions have restored it to its proper pink. Do you think her hair's the right length, or could it have been a bit longer? I mean, we've got her red hair, that's good. Uh, yeah, her hair is red, and that is something from Glinda in the book. I guess it works with the crown and the way that her and with her costume. If she was wearing a different costume, then yeah, I'd say a different hairstyle would be better, but for this costume, it works all right. Are you a good witch or a bad witch? Glinda asks. Who, me? I'm not a witch at all. Witches are old and ugly. And then she hears a little laughter. What was that? The Munchkins. And Glinda says how she is Glinda, the good witch of the north, and how only bad witches are ugly, and how the Munchkins are um, grateful to Dorothy for killing the wicked witch of the east, who was squashed under her house with showing nothing but her striped stockings and ruby slippers. Yes. The silver shoes have become ruby slippers in this one. That is one of the things I also have a bit of a problem with. Um, I do think that sometimes they should have gone with silver shoes. However, um, they, the people who made the film do bring out a good point how ruby red stands out much more clearer on yellow brick than silver does. Especially on Technicolor. Sometimes it does work, sometimes it doesn't, but, and, yes, sometimes silver can really fade into the background if you have, um, a sort of dull-colored house, so red can stand out even more so now. Essentially, these are still the same things. Yes, for the next several minutes, the Munch can sing, they express their gratitude, Thank Dorothy. Welcome to Munchkinland. Make her a national heroine. Um, and then we... Don't we talk a bit about how the Munchkins are portrayed here? Yes, that would be a good point. Um, they're a lot shorter than Bomb actually described them, and they have a lot more co colors than just blue. The Munchkins are played by little people, and in some cases children, to fill up the scene. When Bomb wrote the book, he said that the people were about Dorothy's size, but... I suppose they wanted to do something very original, so they decided to make the Munchkins little people. And, well, it, it kind of makes for a fun, charming-looking set piece. And, to be honest, I really don't have a problem with it. <laughs> I mean, they're cute. <laughs> it works on its own, yes, but when you compare it to different versions of the book, it sometimes can be a little bit too... Sweet, especially when um, you see imitations of these munchkins. They really shouldn't do that. They should really just go for their own. But whatever, this time MGM was doing their own thing. So we can forgive MGM here because they were actually setting this up here. So overall, do you think that the munchkins being little people here works? It is hard for me to really say for sure after always hearing about the book, like in comparison to the film, and seen other versions, but um, I would say for here, it's not bad. It works on its own, just for itself. As standalone, it works. Um, maybe they could have just trimmed down the Ding Dong, the Witch is Dead song, or at least just combined it, combined it into one long song, rather than having it sung twice in the one sequence, but it is a fun scene. It's a good sequence, so I guess there's nothing really wrong with it. The songs the Munchkins sing, they're also pretty iconic. It's like, for some reason recently, I really find myself liking their song, Ding Dong, The Witch is Dead. 
even though you gotta realize it's a really bizarre song because they're singing about how happy they are that someone's dead. <laughs> it is a funny song because um, they have lyrics that go, She's gone where the goblins go below, below, mm. below your hoe. Let's not even sing. And before um, such things like lyrics and sing-along words came along, I always thought they, I always thought they were saying, she's gone where the goblins go um, below or something like that. We know we love your home. Let's not open up and sing. So yeah, it's a little bit hard to get the right words of the song without without a sing-along. But it is funny when you mistake words without the proper lyrics. Well, yeah. And there's a lot of songs in this film. But not a lot, a lot, actually, which we'll get to later. And now, after all of this sweetness, we have this... How would you describe it? Something bitter? Something horrific? Something wicked? Something wicked this way comes. <laughs> That's Shakespeare. We are introduced to the Wicked Witch of the West, who is the sister to the Witch of the East in this version. It's never been confirmed or actually proven that the Wicked Witches were sisters in the original book, but for cinematic and dramatic reasons of the story, they were mis made sisters for this film here, and it has been followed in certain later versions. They could be sisters in the way that you know nuns call each other sisters, in that they're not actually related, they consider themselves sisters in the way that they work, but... I think here they... Sisterhood of sorts. Yeah, but I think here they definitely meant familiar sisters. So the Wicked Witch of the West uh, demands who who killed Again, her sister. Again, Margaret Hamilton. Yes, Margaret Hamilton. And did you know she was actually a big fan of the Oz books? I tend to forget that. Um, I know that she loved the original book and how one time she said, at four... I couldn't see myself as Dorothy, but yes, when she was told how she got a part in The Wizard of Oz, she did say, oh gosh, think of that, from, I love that book, from the time I was four years old. Yeah. What part did they want me to play? Well, they want me to play the witch. The witch? What else? So she really gets to have fun being evil here. It is fun to play evil at times. True, Elfenbaum never really had a massive evil character in his books, let alone a Wicked Witch who would stalk a little girl in his book, where he wanted nightmares and horror stories out of children's minds. But like I said, this is the first real film treatment for The Wizard of Oz. They did things for cinematic purposes, for dramatic purposes, and so they had to emphasize the Wicked Witch's role to make um, the story all the more appealing toward audiences of the day of 1938 to 39. So, yeah. it works here. Yeah, the witch is here quickly set up as the main villain, which is a big difference from the book, because the book is more a series of events of Dorothy trying to find her way back to Kansas. While here we have a villain, main villain, and it's set up as a narrative, which some people say is better, but I'm going to say... No, Bomber's just different. How the Wicked Witch of the West becomes the main villain in the film is that Glinda reminds her that uh, the Wicked Witch of the East had the ruby slippers. And she's about to take the slippers when suddenly Glinda puts them on Dorothy's feet. Way to go, Glinda! You just made Dorothy a target! You know, it's funny. Like, everybody says Glinda did it, but we never really 
actually see that. Like, we don't see Glinda wave her wand at the ruby slippers. I never really caught on to that as well as everyone else. And on that scene where the Witch of the East's feet disappear, um, I, when I was little, I always imagined that the feet turned into something like um, skunks or black and white striped squirrels who scurried under the house. You can see here they actually just shrivel up and go back under the house. And so the Wicked Witch of the West demands these, and Glenda more or less tells her to get lost. Before a house drops on you. Very well. Oh, yeah. I'll bide my time. That's such another iconic line that a lot of people like to use. And yeah, we swear I can't do it in hours I'd like. But let's try to stay on my way. Just try. I'll get you, my pretty. And your little dog, too. And your little dog, too. So anyway, the witch uh, leaves, threatening Dorothy. And as you say, Glinda has made Dorothy a target. You know what? Sometimes when you have a retrospective like this, you just see how they seriously messed up Glinda. Glinda is one of the flaws here. <laughs> so, it, it's not so much that they made them one character, it's so much that some of the things they have uh, Glinda too. Dorothy uh, asked how she can get back home to Kansas, and Glinda said she doesn't know, but the only one who would know would probably be the Wizard of Oz in the Emerald City. She tells her to follow the Yellow Brick Road, uh, road there, and the Munchkins will see her on her way. So, Glinda... Almost gives her a little kiss on the forehead, a slight allusion to the kiss of protection from the original book, and then she disappears again, even though Dorothy was about to ask, but what happens if I... What do you think uh, Dorothy would have asked, though? What if she comes to, say, a fork in the road or loses her way? Who knows what she was thinking? I mean, here she is alone in a strange... Strange land. And... All she's just been told is follow the Yellow Book Road. So that's all she can really do. And the Munchkins do see her on the way with a wonderful little song, Follow the Yellow Book Road. Follow the Yellow Book Road. Go off to see the wizard. The wonderful wizard of Oz. I do like that song. That image where Dorothy skips down the road, that does... um, It is nice to think back on. And occasionally, even with some random tune, that scene does like to pop up into my head now and then. You know, it is one of the more iconic scenes from the film with Dorothy skipping down the other book world with all these munchkins pretty much cheering her on. <laughs> Dorothy and Toto leave munchkin land and eventually Dorothy comes across a fork in the road and she's not sure which way she should go. So suddenly a disembodied voice says, pardon me, that was a very nice way. And she sees a scarecrow pointing down one direction of the road, and she's like, wait a minute, wasn't he pointing the other, other way? And then while she, he's looking down at Toto, she hears the same voice say, that way's a very nice way too. And then she looks up, and the scarecrow's pointing another direction. And then she catches him in the exit, doing like a, a cross point, pointing both directions at once. Of course, some people do go both ways. Really? Why, you did say something, didn't you? And then he shakes his head, and then he nods. Are you doing that on purpose, or can't you make up your mind? That's just the trouble. I haven't any mind. I haven't got a brain. Only straw. How can you talk if you don't have a brain? I don't know, but some people without brains do an awful lot of talking. Like us! <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> Which goes to show how a lot of people don't do any thinking. So, yes, and again, we have Ray Bolger 
reappearing, playing his Scarecrow character, which has sometimes been deemed as the um, most popular Scarecrow. Ray Bogle was also a fan of the Oz books, and mm. he really, really wanted to play the role of the Scarecrow. In fact, uh, Buddy Epson was originally cast as a Scarecrow, and he begged them to switch the roles because he'd been cast as a Tin Man, and he really wanted to play the Scarecrow. Then with that book, Buddy Epson became the Tin Woodman. But yeah, we're getting ahead. So yeah. Ray Bolger plays his favorite character because he gets to travel with Dorothy first and the longest, not counting Toto, of course. And also Fred Stone, who had played the Scarecrow in the original Broadway version of The Wizard of Oz, got to meet him on a radio show and said, In fact, I can truthfully say, you're the man I'd have chosen to play the part of the straw man myself. Now, maybe it was just being scripted or something said because it was a publicity thing. But I thought that was kind of nice. Mm-hmm. So you can kind of see that maybe he actually did have the blessing to play the Scarecrow definitively next. But this Scarecrow does not have any similarity or, or connection to the Munchkins as he does in the book. Yes, his costume is very different. He, he's a full-grown man. He also sings a nice little, very classic song that's been referenced many times, If I Only Had a Brain. <laughs> After he sings the song, Dorothy tells him that she's going to the Emerald City for the wizard to send her home. And he's like, do you think the wizard could give me a brain? Well, he offers to come along, but... Dorothy's concerned for safety because she's got a wicked witch after her, so she's not exactly willing to get him into trouble for... On her account. Yes, he convinces her that he can come along without being too much trouble, and he does help her along the way. He helps Dorothy get out of trouble with some talking apple trees that she picks an apple from, um, which is loosely, very loosely based on the fighting trees from the end of the original book. I guess we might as well get to that part because that is what comes next. Dorothy tries to pick an apple from an apple tree further on down the road and the apple trees are alive and won't litter. So the scarecrow more or less insults them and they start throwing apples at him. Which allows her to get a few more supplies for her lunch or meals as she journeys. Not that she actually uses the basket much aside from, say, carrying food. The basket is more of a Prop means then saying the actual use. Yeah. Of the book. While she's picking one of the apples, she sees a strange tinting on the ground. And knocking on it, she realizes it's the foot of a man made out of tin. Jack Haley, again, the tin man. Jack Haley, who would replace Buddy Ebsen after he had a severe allergic reaction to the aluminum powder makeup. I was a severe allergic reaction, or it had messed with his respiratory system really badly. It is much harder to breathe with powder than paste, for example. That's the thing. Like, Jack Haley plays a tin man. He has an axe. He's in the forest, but he's called a tin man. Um, That's one of the problems that comes from this film. People saying tin man instead of tin woodman. And, well, yes, he is a tin man, but the thing is, he's a woodman. So, 
in part ways they are correct, but that's but the thing is the book is a little more general about uh, what exactly he does and why, which is not really explored properly here. They didn't have the time. The Tin Man manages to communicate with him that he needs to be oiled, and there's an oil can right nearby, so they oil him and loosen him up. Mm. They have the cottage, but it's only used for the Wicked Witch of the West, who reappears here. But we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, because Dorothy comments that he's perfect now, and he says, perfect? Just bang on my chest if you think I'm perfect. Um... She bangs it, there's an echo inside. Well, the Scarecrow compliments on its echo. The Tin Man says otherwise, because the Tinsmith forgot to give him a heart. And that's the closest thing we get to the origin. It makes him sound like he was made of metal, and that was it. The book, of course, has a more complicated origin, but I suppose it has decided that would just be too much to put on film right here. Too much, way too much dialogue, so... They just decided not to use that. But the story is in the book for those of you who actually read books. And he goes on to sing If I Only Had a Heart. It's a nice song, and there's also a little cameo by a Disney princess in it. A vocal cameo, but a cameo nonetheless. Uh, Adriana Casalotti, who played Snow White, sings a little line, Wherefore art thou, Romeo? And it was thanks to Walt Disney's um, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs animated feature debut that actually inspired the real movie version that faithfully followed the book to an extent. Yeah. So thank you, Walt Disney. Even though Walt Disney wanted to make it himself. <laughs> but history happened, and well, this is what we were left with, and it's not a bad thing. After the song, Dorothy invites him to come along, and what if the wizard would give me one when we got there, he asks. Oh, he must, says Dorothy. You've come such a long way already. And then, you call that long? Why, you've just begun. Helping the little lady along, are you, my fine gentleman? Ha ha. Yes, it's the Wicked Witch of the West back. She's on top of the cottage. And Margaret Hamilton really gets to be wicked in these scenes. And it's such a great performance. Now, she throws the, hers a fireball at the Scarecrow, but it doesn't hit him. Instead, just burns the ground. I think it's just a warning shot, really. So the Tin Woman extinguishes it, and after the witch disappears, they decide that whatever happens, they're going to put help protect Dorothy, which is a really nice little character-building moment there. And Dorothy feels as though these two are familiar somehow, but she can't quite figure it out, though. Do you think she could have said that a little bit later, after all three? I don't really think it would have worked later, but I think it works okay here. They join, they sing, we're off to see the wizard, and then they journey deep into the forest, where we come across another classic movie line. Do you think there were any wild animals in this forest? Some, but mostly Mm. lions and tigers and bears. Lions? Tigers and bears. Oh my. Yes, that's it. Lions and tigers and bears, oh my. They start chanting that and wa- uh, walking down the road together and suddenly, roar, a lion jumps out at them. Uh, Dorothy and Toto hide and the Tin Man and Scarecrow get knocked over. Fall back, more. Bert Laura plays the Cowardly Lion and he has so much... F- he is so funny doing this. Put him off, put him off! But Toto is the only one who shows a bit of guts because he barks up to the lion and when the lion threatens him... Um, Dorothy gives him a bit of a slap on the nose, which shows his true colors, yellow. 
he reveals that he doesn't have any courage at all. He's so lacking in courage that he can't even count sheep to go to sleep because he's scared of them. <laughs> I have slept in weeks. Why should I count sheep? That's no good. I'm afraid of them. They invite him to join along. And mm-hmm. he sings his own little version of the song, If I Only Had the Nerve. And then they all head, head off. Which he pronounces more as Noiv. We come to a little moment which has sometimes been joked about, like how going down the road, the yellow brick road gets a little bit narrow. So sometimes when all four friends or adults are journey, dancing along, skipping down, it gets a little bit tight. So Judy gets kind of um, squished back, out back behind them. So she's... But you don't really see that in the final film, but it's something she has joked about in her later years. Do you think people forget Bert Law is playing a lion with him standing on his hind legs? Well, the thing is, how else would they have really accomplished it? Because if they just had him, like, on all fours, that would not really have sold it quite as well. That would have just looked silly. And a little uncomfortable, I suppose, yeah. It's, but... Especially when you consider the weight of his costume how heavy was it hold on here cowardly lion costume weight okay it says 50 pounds here but then it says tnt says it was 90 pounds so it's 50 to 90 pounds i suppose that's heavy he had the luxury of that the weight was spread across his body but still that was still quite a bit to have on you at, at one time. He said that it felt like he was being strapped between two mattresses, really. And when they took his costume off, there was this waterfall of sweat, I've heard, which they would all have to mop up before they put him back in again. I think they did enough makeup on his nose and adding his ears and the tail that they managed to make him look like a lion, mm. even if it was bipedal. Even though he is kind of a man-lion, a lion-man, or whatever you want to say, he still is looks enough like a lion, so you think that's a lion, not a regular person in some weird costume. Mm-hmm. Even though that is exactly what he is. They were going for the vaudeville approach. I mean, it was still yeah. just almost 40 years from when the book was published, So, and Broadway was pop, much more popular at that time than than it is now so yeah at that time sound had sound and color had come out so people there was still a lot of overlap between how vaudeville and between how stage shows and movies were being done and that scene in this film Mm -hmm. today we've today film has evolved into something different where we do stuff on film we would never do in a movie and if you do uh play there's things that just would not work in a movie we've definitely got a lot more wit and characters making comments about each other or you know um blah 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 like talking quickly than they used to back in the day another thing to remember about the costumes of not just uh the cowardly lion but really all the costumes is that not only did they design the costumes to uh, and make up to look like the Oz characters, they designed it so that we could still recognize the actor or actress underneath the costume, and mm. they could still give the full portrayal while not being hindered by it. In the 1933 Alice in Wonderland, uh, the one with, what was her name? Charlotte Henry. Yeah. They had 
uh, actually really messed up there by putting masks on a lot of the actors so you couldn't recognize who they were. Big, heavy, thick masks. Best example being the March Hare, um, the Duchess, the Tweedle Twins. The Mock Turtle. Uh, just a lot of these characters or actors were in this introduction, this long introduction saying who was playing who even though these characters were only going to be on for a few seconds. And, well, they make a big deal out of nothing, actually. And so even with the credits, it's a bit hard to tell which actors playing which character. It just goes to show how much of an improvement MGM's Wizard of Oz is over Paramount's Alice in Wonderland. So, yeah, actually, when MGM was thinking about the makeup, I knew that I was one thing they wanted to avoid. And, well, anyway, you had Fred Stone and David Montgomery, who were in the original play, The Wizard of Oz, who were recognizable with their makeup. So, not to be defeated by the play, they lived up to it. Mm. Now, then, we go over to the Wicked to the West, who is not to who is back home in her castle, and she's none too happy about what she's seeing going on in her crystal ball. Because she's following Dorothy's progress. So she decides to stop them by whipping up a deadly poppy field right before the Emerald City. I'm sure that you or Pius Snow, or people who have read the book at least, know that the deadly poppy field had nothing to do with the Witch of the West. And it certainly had many, a few more adventures before it and a different resolution. But um, like I said, for the sake of drama story and character, it was modified here. And even though there were people who much prefer the Queen of the Field Mice coming to the rescue, I would have to say how a snowstorm works much better on screen to destroy a poppy field than an army of field mice pulling a wagon of sorts, which the snowstorm of which has Glinda's hand in it. So a wicked witch makes the poppies, likewise a good witch uses a snowstorm to dispose of the poppies. Now, this is actually taken straight from the original Broadway musical, because in that one, the Good to the North kills the poppies with the snowstorm. This is exactly what happens here. Which, you gotta admit that, considering that it was 1939, it's much more cinematic. It's easier to resolve than, say, getting an army, attaching strings with to a cart, so maybe someday we'll get that actual resolve, but... For now, it actually works in the film. They finally get to the Emerald City. Yeah, and the witch is not too happy that someone has helped that girl. She gets on her broom and flies away while they arrive at the Emerald City. And they have a very humorous version of the Guardian of the Gates, who is also played by uh, Frank Morgan. And with these characters, Frank Morgan really gets to be sort of goofy, um, sort of exaggerate emotions of so Professor Marble is the only straight character he actually plays. They led into the Emerald City when the doorman sees that Dorothy has ruby slippers. After they let in, they're met by a cabbie, also played by Frank Morgan, with a horse who can change color. What do you think of the Emerald City look like with its sort of upside down test tubes or something like that? Way of you know with the domed roofs that actually is based on how. Bomb describes uh, architecture in Oz, with wherever where most houses are dome-shaped. It just for some reason, the whole look of it never really comes off as a city to me. It does have a nice Art Deco, but 
just the lack of children, the lack of actual buildings that you can actually believe people would live in, free loving attitude of getting getting up at 12, starting work at 1, taking an hour for lunch and being finished at 2. Well, yeah, um, look what all they must have to do. Yes, the Emerald City is nice, but it doesn't look much like a city enough. Like, it's just some round... It's just basically some straight lines with a round topping, and that's not really fantasy enough. More Slightly more scientific or sci-fi-like. It's more like the entire Emerald City is just the wizard's uh, castle grounds. That's it. Mm-hmm. In this film. In the original book, we had commerce going on and everything. So that really sold the idea of it being a city where people lived and worked. But this doesn't quite do it. <laughs> However, the scenes are so fleeting that you might not really do that, really, unless you're looking, reading as into it as we are. You probably won't really notice it. <laughs> but there are some good touches, like the little emerald green star set with when it glistens and it does have some trees like it's not i mean yes there's a lot of marble but it does have have at least some plants so i guess it's not completely void of vegetation even though it's not perfect it could have been worse and it is pretty good and we've sometimes seen other versions of the emerald city where it's like these clusters like emerald shaped clusters so i suppose it might have been easier for them to do something as simple as upside down test tubes rather than emerald jaded clusters which would not go along with the witch's sharp architecture i suppose i think having a sharp jagged edges would make the emerald city not look quite as welcoming have a slight more menace than it actually does yeah. with the wizard being there but at least they did put effort and thought into this so it's nice at times it's good it's not bad yeah it's just that we kind of wish the emerald city looked a bit more lived in i must say how the one problem i have with the emerald city is that how it's all adults there are no children in the emerald city it, it, it would have been nicer to see a bit to have some kids around there because but maybe you can just assume that they're all in school or something you can't really say that because um, the people of the Emerald City have a song about their merry old land of Oz, how they oh, get up at 12 and start, start to work, to work, at, work one. at one, take an hour for lunch, then at two, we're done. Jolly good fun. fun. <laughs> yeah, lazy. That's so lazy. It's a wonder they've gotten anything done, though. Yeah. That's, well, maybe yeah, so, it's based on how the people of Oz enjoy the work just as much as their play, so they don't really consider the work they actually do work. So, who knows? Um, but definitely some people in Oz do work because they're taken to uh, the Wash and Brush Up Company, where... It's here that the scarecrow gets stuffed with fresh new straw, the Tin Man gets polished up, Dorothy gets a new hairdo, her dress is puffed up a bit more, and the lion gets his um, fur cold, a little bow in his hair, and his claws are a little bit trimmed. Manicure, pedicure, claw cure, and then the witch, then the Wicked Witch of the West is a killjoy. Yeah. She appears and does some skywriting saying, surrender Dorothy. Dorothy? Who's Dorothy? The people of the Emerald City, he shout. The wizard explained, to the wizard, to the wizard. 
but the door of the wizard's palace are shut, and there is a soldier at the door, also played by Frank Morgan. It's always worded that Frank Morgan was in every single person at the Washington Brothers Company. And we should point out how, with these different personas Frank Morgan plays, it's almost like a different accent of sorts. Like, the Gate of the Guardian, he's pretty much American, but the cabbie has a bit of an Irish brogue with his, like, furry St. Patrick's hat of sorts. And the soldier, who includes Ombi Ambi's flower stalk or whatever, um, with his woolly gloves, woolly hat, and cape, he almost brings to mind a Russian soldier of sorts. The soldier assures everyone that the wizard has everything under control. But when Dorothy and her friends get there, orders are no one sees the great eyes. Not nobody, not know how. Oh, but please, it's very important. And uh, Dorothy's turned down, and but her, but when he finds out that she is Dorothy, he changes his mind and goes to see the wizard. A little known fact here is that there are deleted scenes that suggest that a change of the guard. Nobody really seems to notice how when we first see the soldier, his whiskers is pointing upwards. Then when we cut back to him later, they're pointing downwards. I'm not sure how they would have done this exactly when it was actually filmed, but it's just that how Frank Morgan played two soldiers, with the only difference being the direction of their whiskers. I don't really notice that. Well, it is very noticeable in a later scene, but we'll get to that in a bit. While they're gone, they think, yes, the wizard's going to listen to us and he'll grant us all our wishes. And the lion sings a song, If I Were King of the Forest, which is a funny little ditty where he gets to express his inner wishes about becoming king. Pretty much the hopes are dashed by the soldier coming back in and saying that they're not going to be allowed. But then Dorothy starts crying and saying about how she's never going to see her aunt him again. The, you can see the wizard, you can see a soldier crying, and this is when you really notice that his whiskers have changed shape. So it's almost like the whiskers have changed shape because of his mood instead of that they actually changed the guard. And he connects with Dorothy on an emotional level, having once an aunt him himself, but um, then he lets them in. And the friends are a little bit scared at seeing him at first. Like, Lion is having second thoughts, but his friends get him through in the end. And the wizard appears to all of them as a ghostly head above a bunch of smoke and flames. And for some reason... You don't see the throne. No. For some reason... You don't really get to see a good look at the throne. For some reason, he seems to know what they have come for. But when he makes Lion so scared that he faints, Dorothy says, shame on you. I really like this line. You ought to be ashamed of yourself, frightening him like that when he came to you for help. Silence, whippersnapper! The great and beneficent Oz has every intention of granting your requests. What was that? What was that? But first, you must do a little task to prove yourself worthy. Bring me the broomstick of the Witch of the West, and I will grant your requests. But in order to do that, we'd have to kill you to get it. Bring me the broomstick. Yeah, the audience gets the idea. Yeah. But, um, so yeah, um, in the book, um, the wizard says to specifically kill the Wicked Witch of the West, whereas with the lion... In the book, he says, bring me proof. But here in the film, he just says to bring the broomstick. Um, honestly, I never really noticed much the difference between kill the Wicked Witch 
and bring me her broomstick, but um, at least here they actually do emphasize a bit about the lion's demand of being asked to bring proof of the witch's death, which is a broomstick of sorts. And also that it's pretty much made clear by the Tin Woodman's dialogue that we'd have to kill her to get it. And that's where we're cut off for right now. Part two will be in the next podcast.